Part 1, Chapter 2 of Beyond by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 2 In spite of his victory over all human rivals in the heart of Jip, Winton had a rival whose strength he fully realised, perhaps for the first time now that she was gone, and he, before the fire, was brooding over her departure and the past. Not likely that one of his decisive type whose life had so long been bound up with swords and horses, would grasp what music might mean to a little girl. Such ones, he knew, required to be taught scales, and in a cottage near a wood, with other melodies. He took care not to go within sound of them, so that he had no conception of the avidity with which Jip had mopped up all, and more than all, her governess could teach her. He was blind to the rapture with which she listened to any stray music that came its way to Mildenham to carols in the Christmas dark, to certain hymns, and one special nunc dimittis in the village church attended with a hopeless regularity, to the horn of the hunter far out in the quivering, dripping coverts, even to mark his whistling, which was full and strangely sweet. He could share her love of dogs and horses, take an anxious interest in her way of catching bumblebees in the hollow of her hand and putting them to her small, delicate ears to hear them buzz, sympathise with her continual ravages among the flower-beds in the old-fashioned garden, full of lilacs and laburnums in spring, pinks, roses, cornflowers in summer, dahlias and sunflowers in autumn, and always a little neglected and overgrown, a little squeezed in, and elbowed by the more important surrounding paddocks. He could sympathise with her attempts to draw his attention to the song of birds, but it was simply not in him to understand how she loved and craved for music. He was a cloudy little creature, up and down in mood, rather like a brown lady spaniel that she had, now gay as a butterfly, now brooding as night. Any touch of harshness she took to heart fearfully. It was the strangest compound of pride and self-disparagement. The qualities seemed mixed in her so deeply that neither she nor anyone knew of which her cloudy fits were the result. Being so sensitive, she fancied things terribly. Things that others did to her, and thought nothing of, often seemed to her conclusive evidence that she was not loved by anybody, which was dreadfully unjust, because she wanted to love everyone, nearly. Then suddenly she would feel, If they don't love me, I don't care, I don't want anything of anybody. Presently all would blow away, just like a cloud, and she would love and be gay, until something fresh, perhaps not at all meant to hurt her, would again hurt her horribly. In reality, the whole household loved and admired her. But she was one of those delicate, treading beings, born with a skin too few, who, and especially in childhood, suffer from themselves in a world born with a skin too many. To Winston's extreme delight, she took to riding as a duck to water, and knew no fear on horseback. She had the best governess he could get her, the daughter of an admiral, and therefore in distressed circumstances and later on a tutor for her music who came twice a week all the way from London, a sardonic man who cherished for her even more sweet admiration than she for him. In fact, every male thing fell in love with her, at least a little. Unlike most girls, she never had an epoch of awkward plainness, but grew like a flower, evenly, steadily. Winton often gazed at her with a sort of intoxication, 
a turn of her head, the way those perfectly shaped, wonderfully clear brown eyes would fly, the set of her straight, round neck, the very shaping of her limbs, were all such poignant reminders of what he had so loved. And yet, for all that likeness to her mother, there was a difference both in form and character. Jip had, as it were, an extra touch of breeding, more chiselling in body, more fastidiousness in soul, a little more poise, a little more sheer grace. In mood, more variance, in mind, more clarity, and, mixed with her sweetness, a distinct spice of scepticism which her mother had lacked. In modern times there are no longer toasts, or she would have been one with both the hunts. Though delicate in build, she was not frail, and when her blubbers up would go all day, and come in so bone-tired that she would drop onto the tiger-skin before the fire, rather than face the stairs. Life at Mildenham was lonely, save for Winton's hunting cronies, and they but few, for his spiritual dandyism did not gladly suffer the average country gentleman and his frigid, courtesy-frightened women. Besides, as Betty had foreseen, tongues did wag. Those tongues of the countryside, avid of anything that might spice the tedium of dull lives and brains. And though no breath of gossip came to Winton's ears, no women visited at Mildenham, save for the friendly casual acquaintanceships of churchyard, hunting field and local race meetings, Jip grew up knowing hardly any of her own sex. This dearth developed her reserve, kept her backward in sex perception, gave her her faint unconscious contempt for men, creatures always at the beck and call of her smile and so easily disquieted by a little frown, gave her also a secret yearning for companions of her own gender. Any girl or woman that she did chance to meet always took a fancy to her because she was so nice to them, which made the transitory nature of these friendships tantalising. She was incapable of jealousies or backbiting. Let men beware of her. There is, coiled in their fibre, a secret fascination. Kip's moral and spiritual growth was not the sort of subject that Winton could pay much attention to. It was pre-eminently a matter one did not talk about. Outward forms, such as going to church, should be preserved. Manners should be taught her by his own example as much as possible. Beyond this, nature must look after things. His view had much real wisdom. She was a quick and voracious reader, bad at remembering what she had read. And though she had soon devoured all the books in Winton's meagre library, including Barham, White Meville, and Humboldt's Cosmos, they had not left too much on her mind. The attempts of her little governess to impart religion were somewhat arid of result, and the interests of the vicar, Jip, with her instinctive spice of scepticism, soon put into the same category as the interest of all the other males she knew. She felt that he enjoyed calling her, my dear, and patting her shoulder, and that this enjoyment was enough reward for his exertions. Tucked away in that little old dark manor-house, whose stables alone were up to date, three hours from London and some thirty miles from the wash, it must be confessed that her upbringing lacked modernity. About twice a year, Winton took her up to town to stay with his unmarried sister Rosamond in Curzon Street. Those weeks, if they did nothing else, increased her natural taste for charming clothes, fortified her teeth, and fostered her passion for music and the theatre. But the two main nourishments of the modern girl, discussion and games, she lacked utterly. 
Moreover, those years of her life, from 15 to 19, were before the social resurrection of 1906, and the world still crawled like a winter fly on a window pane. Winter was a Tory, Aunt Rosamond a Tory, everybody round her a Tory. The only spiritual development she underwent all those years of her girlhood was through her headlong love for her father. After all, was there any other way in which she could really have developed? Only love makes fruitful the soul. A sense of form that both had in such high degree prevented much demonstration. But to be with him, do things for him, to admire and credit him with perfection, and since she could not exactly wear the same clothes or speak in the same clipped, quiet, decisive voice, to dislike the clothes and voices of other men. All this was precious to her beyond everything. If she inherited from him that fastidious sense of form, she also inherited his capacity for putting all her eggs in one basket. And, since her company alone gave him real happiness, the current of love flowed over her heart all the time. Though she never realised it, abundant love for somebody was as necessary to her as water running up the stems of flowers. Abundant love from somebody as needful as sunshine on their petals. And Winton's somewhat frequent little runs to Sion, to Newmarket or where not, were always marked in her by a fall of the barometer, which recovered as his return grew near. One part of her education at all events was not neglected, the cultivation of an habitual sympathy with her poorer neighbours. Without concerning himself in the least with problems of sociology, Winton had by nature an open hand and heart for cottagers and abominated interference with their lives. And so it came about that Jip, who by nature also never set foot anywhere without invitation, was always hearing the words, Step in, Miss Jip. Step in and sit down, lovey and a good many words besides from even the boldest and baddest characters. There is nothing like a soft and pretty face and sympathetic listening for seducing the hearts of the people. So passed the eleven years till she was nineteen and Winton forty-six. Then, under the wing of her little governess, she went to the Hunt Ball. She had revolted against appearing a fluffy miss, wanting to be considered at once full-fledged, so that her dress, perfect in fit, was not white but palest maize colour, as if she had already been to dances. She had all Winton's dandyism, and just so much more as was appropriate to her sex. Her dark hair, wonderfully fluffed and coiled, waving across her forehead, her neck bare for the first time, her eyes really flying, and a demeanour perfectly cool, as though she knew that light and movement, covetous looks, soft speeches and admiration were her birthright. She was more beautiful than even Winton had thought her. At her breast she wore some sprigs of yellow jasmine procured by him from town, a flower of whose scent she was very fond, and that he had never seen worn in ballrooms. That swaying, delicate creature, warmed by excitement, reminded him in every movement and by every glance of her eyes of her whom he had first met at just such a ball as this. By the carriage of his head, the twist of his little moustache, he conveyed to the world the pride he was feeling. That evening held many sensations for Jip, some delightful, one confused, one unpleasant. He revelled in her success. Admiration was very dear to her, 
She passionately enjoyed dancing, loved feeling that she was dancing well and giving pleasure. But twice over, she sent away her partners, smitten with compassion for her little governess sitting there against the wall, all alone, with no one to take notice of her, because she was elderly and roundabout, poor darling. And, to that loyal person's horror, she insisted on sitting beside her all through two dances. Nor would she go into supper with anyone but Winton. Returning to the ballroom on his arm, she overheard an elderly woman say, Oh, don't you know, of course he really is the father. And an elderly man answered, Ah, that accounts for it, quite so. With those eyes at the back of the head which the very sensitive possess, she could see their inquisitive, cold, slightly malicious glances, and knew they were speaking of her. And just then her partner came for her. Really is her father. The words meant too much to be grasped this evening of full sensations. They left a little bruise somewhere, but softened and anointed, just a sense of confusion at the back of her mind. And very soon came that other sensation, so disillusioning that all else was crowded out. It was after a dance, a splendid dance with a good-looking man quite twice her age. They were sitting behind some palms, he murmuring in his mellow, flown voice admiration for her dress, when suddenly he bent his flushed face and kissed her bare arm above the elbow. If he had hit her, he could not have astonished or hurt her more. It seemed to her innocence that he would never have done such a thing if she had not said something dreadful to encourage him. Without a word, she got up, gazed at him a moment with eyes dark from pain, shivered and slipped away. She went straight to Winton. From her face, all closed up, tightened lips and the familiar little droop at their corners, he knew something dire had happened, and his eyes boded ill for the person who had hurt her. But she would say nothing except that she was tired and wanted to go home. And so, with the little faithful governess, who, having been silent perforce nearly all the evening, was now full of conversation, they drove out into the frosty night. Winton sat beside the chauffeur, smoking viciously, his fur collar turned up over his ears, his eyes stabbing the darkness under his round, low-drawn fur cap. Who had dared upset his darling? And within the car the little governess chattered softly, and Jip, shrouded in lace, in her dark corner, sat silent, seeing nothing but the vision of that insult. Sad end to a lovely night. She lay awake long hours in the darkness, while a sort of coherence was forming in her mind. Those words really is her father, and that man's kissing of her bare arm were a sort of revelation of sex mystery, hardening the consciousness that there was something at the back of her life. A chance so sensitive had not, of course, quite failed to feel the spiritual draughts round her, but instinctively she had recoiled from more definite perceptions. The time before Winton came was all so faint. Betty, toys, short glimpses of a kind, invalidish man called Papa. As in that word, there was no depth compared with the word Dad displayed on Winton, so there had been no depth in her feelings towards the squire. When a girl has no memory of her mother, how dark are many things. None, except Betty, had ever talked of her mother. There was nothing sacred in Jip's associations, no faiths to be broken by any knowledge that might come to her. Isolated from other girls, she had little realisation even of the conventions. 
Still, she suffered horribly lying there in the dark. From bewilderment, from thorns dragged over her skin rather than from a stab in the heart. The knowledge of something about her, conspicuous, doubtful, provocative of insult, as she thought, grievously hurt her delicacy. Those few wakeful hours made a heavy mark. She fell asleep at last, still all in confusion, and woke up with a passionate desire to know. All that morning she sat at her piano, playing, refusing to go out, frigid to Betty and the little governess, till the former was reduced to tears and the latter to Wordsworth. After tea she went to Winton's study, that dingy little room where he never studied anything, with leather chairs and books which, except Mr. Jorrocks, Byron, those on the care of horses and the novels of White Melville, were never read, with prints of super-requine celebrities, his sword and photographs of Jim and of brother officers on the walls. Two bright spots there were indeed, the fire and the little bowl that Jip always kept filled with flowers. When she came gliding in like that, a slender, rounded figure, her creamy, dark-eyed oval face all cloudy, she seemed to Winton to have grown up all of a sudden. He'd known all day that something was coming, and had been cudgelling his brains finely. From the fervour of his love for her, he felt an anxiety that was almost fear. What could have happened last night, that first night of her entrance into society, meddlesome, gossiping society? He slid down to the floor against his knee. He could not see her face, could not even touch her, for she had settled down on his right side. He mastered his tremors and said, Well, Jip, tired? No. A little bit? No. Was it up to what you thought last night? Yes. The logs hissed and crackled. The long flames ruffled in the chimney draught. The wind roared outside. Then, so suddenly that he took his breath away, Dad, are you really and truly my father? When that which one has always known might happen, at last does happen, how little one is prepared. In the few seconds before an answer that could in no way be evaded, Winton had time for a tumult of reflection. A less resolute character would have been caught by utter mental blankness, then flung itself in panic on yes or no. But Winter was incapable of losing his head. He would not answer without having faced the consequences of his reply. To be her father was the most warming thing in his life. But if he avowed it, how far would he injure her love for him? What did a girl know? How make her understand? What would her feeling be about her dead mother? How would that dead loved one feel? What would she have wished? It was a cruel moment. And the girl, pressed against his knee, with face hidden, gave him no help. Impossible to keep it from her now that her instinct was roused. Silence, too, would answer for him. And, clenching his hand on the arm of his chair, he said, Yes, Jib. Your mother and I loved each other. He felt a quiver go through her. Would have given much to see her face. What, even now, did she understand? Well, it must be gone through with, and he said, What made you ask? She shook her head and murmured, I'm glad. 
grief shock even surprise would have roused all his loyalty to the dead all the old stubborn bitterness and he would have frozen up against her but this acquiescent murmur made him long to smooth it down nobody has ever known she died when you were born it was a fearful grief to me if you've heard anything it's just gossip because you go by my name your mother was never talked about but it's best you should know now you're grown up people don't often love as she and i loved you needn't be ashamed she had not moved and her face was still turned from him she said quietly i'm not ashamed am i very like her yes more than i could ever have hoped very low she said then you don't love me for myself winter was but dimly conscious of how that question revealed her nature its power of piercing instinctively to the heart of things its sensitive pride and demand for utter and exclusive love for things that go too deep one opposes the bulwark of obtuseness and smiling he simply said what do you think then to his dismay he perceived that she was crying struggling against it so that her shoulder shook against his knee he had hardly ever known her cry not in all the disasters of unstable youth and she had received her full need of knocks and tumbles he could only stroke that shoulder and say don't cry jip don't cry she ceased as suddenly as she had begun got up and before he too could rise was gone that evening at dinner she was just as usual he could not detect the slightest difference in her voice or manner or in her good-night kiss and so a moment that he had dreaded for years was over leaving only the faint shame which follows a breach of reticence on the spirits of those who worship it while the old secret had been quite undisclosed it had not troubled him disclosed it hurt him but jip in those twenty-four hours had left childhood behind for good her feeling toward men had hardened if she did not hurt them a little they would hurt her the sex instinct had come to life to winton she gave as much love as ever even more perhaps but the dew was off End of part one, chapter two.